Hey everybody, this is Jeremy. You are about to hear a conversation uh, Garrett and I had with the author, professor, and speaker, Tad Delay. This happened, I think, on a, one of the uh, days. That, this, is like the, this is the first weekend in June 2020. We're in the middle of a massive, hell at this point, it's the world uprising, certainly in a North American one. And so we cover everything from... Uh, to talk about his book called Against What Does the White What Does the Evangelical Want? We get into stuff like a lot of of some uh, some Lacan. We get into like how desire works. How does the death drive work? Um, yeah, we it, it, we get into everything from like you know how does evangelical pop culture work and how does it function and even like a little bit on how it kind of compares and contrasts with conspiracy theory culture. Uh, if you like what you hear and you want to help us help support us, you can at Patreon.com/slash Giving the Mic. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for me or any suggestions for good Korean food or other guests that we should have, please email me at Giving the Mic at Gmail.com. And yeah, that's uh, pretty much all I have. So yeah, uh, check out Tad Delay's uh, latest book, which he also has on his podcast. If you go to taddelay.com, he's kind of made a little like you know a little podcast version of his book. You can listen to it in like ten episodes of about eh, fifteen twenty minutes each. It's uh, it is pretty consumable. And uh, and with that, on with the show. <laughs> For lack of a better way to, to, to introduce things, hi everybody, once again, welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person, I am your hosted friend Jeremy, back again with a collection of old friends and new, uh, we are still, st- <laughs> we are, right now we're recording this in the middle of the latest new normal, um, you know, because at this point we're, uh, you know, centuries are happening in weeks, and uh, wanted to bring on, uh, talk to... Uh, Talk to somebody who's been researching kind of um, let's call it just like evangelical culture and uh, in the kind of like how it functions, especially orbiting around um, kind of like American um, conservatism, as it were. So, um, if, what, go around and let's see. First, introduce. My, I want to introduce my uh, my co-host Garrett. Can you say hello to the viewing audience? Hello, viewing audience. It's me, Garrett, again. Oh, thank you. And in special guest, can you introduce yourself uh, to the crowd um, and take it away? Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. My name is Tad DeLay, and I am the author of, most recently, Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? I also read a book called The Cynic and the Fool, and another called God is Unconscious on Psychoanalysis and Theology. And uh, I, uh, I live in Denver, Colorado. I teach at uh, four schools here and then also at uh, Michigan State. Um, I teach a, a, a mix of philosophy and religious studies courses, and my research interests are psychoanalysis, um, Marxian critical theory, climate change, fascism studies, uh, a bunch of stuff like that. I, I kind of, I guess, keep my work uh, pretty focused on uh, whatever horrifying thing is staring me in the face <laughs> at the moment <laughs> and, and trying to give some sort of theoretical coherence to um, what, I, what I think people are enjoying in that horror. 
What what are you uh, what are you teaching at Michigan State? At Michigan State, I was brought on to do a Jewish philosophy. They they kind of said like we need somebody who can do like a bunch of like Marx and Freud and uh, that whole tradition that mm-hmm. kind of oh, comes out of cool. Jewish thought in the 20th century. And I kind of said like oh, that's great because I I can only teach Marx and Freud. That's the only thing I'm actually good at. So <laughs> uh, so so I've been doing that, and uh, it, it's not just that. It's a it's a broad range of of Jewish philosophers um, uh, with an eye to religion in the 20th century mainly gotcha but uh yeah it, it's it's been fun so okay. so i do that course once a year there and then maybe expanding out sometime in the next year kind of it, everybody's plans for what instructors teach what is kind of all up in the air right now because yeah. uh you know the world is collapsing and everything so that's true um all right <laughs> yeah, so a note for so actually i'm just just re- just re- remembering uh this we can hit on this later but yeah uh somebody pointed out that one of the um one of the one of the potential not even potential one of the probable causes of anger is that you know the apocalypse showed up but it wasn't you know it, uh, for all of these like kind of like prepper um like end times types it wasn't you know mad max you know each for, you know hobbsian each for them all it was mm-hmm. you know a bunch of leftists in every city coming to, and everybody else coming together to like you know make sure that everybody had masks and food and mutual aid groups Right. Yeah. None of that's fun because like you, uh, you can't shoot. I mean, you can like maybe the leftists in the street is something that you can sort of fetishize like or fantasize about, uh, you know, shooting if you're like one of these like militia types or something like that. Um, But before that, the end of the world was just like everybody staying in their homes and there's there's nothing to shoot at. Right. There's no, (laughs) um, you know, so, you know, whatever. Uh, It's the end of the world, but not the one we expected. Yeah. Like, yeah, they can't even, uh, you know, they can't even play, uh, they can't even, you know, play real world Fallout slash Call of Duty in real life or something. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I guess um, to start with, can you talk, let's, I guess let's start with, talk about your, um, your, you know, like an overview of your most recent book. Cause I, and I want, cause I wanted to start with that and then eventually if you could bring, bring, like again, bring in the, Originally, that was just going to be like you know the responses to uh, the responses to lockdown and everything from like the protests to you know that kind of sure. thing. in that kind of an area. Then we we can just go for there. How about that? Yeah, that absolutely. Work? So the the most recent book is called Against What Does the White Evangelical Want. And it sort of came from this idea I had that I, I especially after 2016, after the election, I kept getting the, a very similar range of questions from uh, my kind of like centrist uh, liberal family and friends, um, you know, just all kind of the standard stuff like, don't they grasp the notion of hypocrisy? Um, why, why, why don't people like believe in climate science or evolution? Why do people think like the widely popular act of sex is like somehow a threat? Um, you know, Why can't they tell the difference between Jesus and Nazis, um, don't they get hypocrisy? All of that kind of stuff. And, and I, there was kind of a range of those questions that I kept seeing over and over. And I kind of thought, well, what if I? So I, I come out of a white evangelical background, and um, it, it's actually kind of out of taking that stuff too seriously that I kind of uh, broke my brain and entered this territory of like left wing philosophy and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, so so I, you know, that like that's you know dialectics, right? Um, right. That's how it works. So I. Um, I had some questions that I still wanted to answer for myself, and then I wanted to be able to give like a kind of a. I never really had a book when when I would do speaking engagements that I could kind of like everybody would kind of say oh, I don't understand this, this and this about the doctrinal stuff that I grew up 
leaving. But it, like there was another set of questions like I don't get this political like problem, this like very kind of uh, white supremacist, like aggressive, like uh, fascist esque aspect of my background also. So so there would be kind of these two broad range, like one kind of the doctrinal and one kind of the, the white supremacist nationalist um, type of questions. And I, and I kind of always thought like it would be really nice if I had like a book where I could just kind of express how I understand all of that working together and, and which is primary and which is actually just playing a supporting role. Um, so anyways, to cut it short, I ended up writing this book with five chapters. The book is called Against. The five chapters are Against Future on uh, climate change and apocalypticism and militarism and all of that energy. Against Future, uh, Against Knowledge, which is on education and uh, racism and segregation in the U.S., um, but also like evolution and the way that there's actually kind of a weird relationship between the drive to keep white and black children separate, um, which, of course, gets covered over with like the abortion debate later on. Um, And there's a way that that plays into like the anti-knowledge, anti-expertise drive within white evangelicalism and reactionary thought in general. Okay, so Against Future, Against Knowledge, Against Sexuality, Against Reality which is like a, a media studies uh, chapter and then against society which is a cl- concluding chapter that could really stand on its own it's really kind of a way to for me to kind of process um, how I understand reactionary movements and fascism studies and the, the the multiple vectors, none of which would be too surprising right now, right? I, I think one thing that's really characteristic of our moment is that we understand that there are these different coalitions with um, everything from like, uh, you know, like uh, uh, communism to like arch reactionary white nationalism, all kind of in the same space. And whether we kind of go down like the full blown fascism route, which I, I'm kind of skeptical about, but like it seems like the the precursors are there. Um, or if we kind of go on like we are in right now forever and things just become more intolerable and unbearable, that doesn't seem like that would be surprising also. Uh, or if we're in civil war by the end of the year, um, that also seems like kind of hard for me to imagine. But I can imagine like just a few months down the road kind of thinking like, how could we possibly not be in civil war already? Right. Um, so so like whatever happens is it, basically all of the the pretexts um, in the, the uh, material conditions um, are, are there on the ground and nobody can predict what's going to happen next. And that's that's the terror, especially in 2020. Right. Is that so many things could happen. They would all look very obvious in retrospect and we are getting a taste of it when we've seen um, unprecedented uprisings for like the last week and a half right yeah. which like now that they've happened it's like how could they have not right yeah. but, but two weeks ago it would have been like well you know that's never going to happen. But yeah. Anyways, yes, yeah, so that's what that's what I did. And the, the last chapter is just kind of a study of reactionary thought in general. And um, so I, I, if, if anybody encounters my work, I hope it's helpful to kind of think through, even if we're not so interested in white evangelicalism in particular. I'm very interested in the, the ways that people enjoy this kind of weird um, faith, which I am like pretty, uh, pretty like straightforwardly calling the most dangerous faith in existence, if, if a faith can actually be said to be dangerous at all, right? Um, uh, it, it, um, this this faith kind of gives us a way to understand all sorts of other enjoyments of reactionary coalitions, right? So when we're talking about white evangelicalism, 
It might be that there's a lot of overlap with Trumpism, or it might be that Trumpism is actually just a perfected form of white evangelicalism. However you want to interpret that, um, it's my hope that the the way that I'm trying to frame the enjoyment of the sadism and the masochism and just like the gratuitous bullshit uh, is at least hopefully helpful for people to kind of get their, their minds around that. Yeah, can you get into that? Because you, you write a lot about, I think this is where the Lacanian stuff comes into, write about, um, can you get into the desire, at also, but also the desire to cause like the desire to enjoy the suffering of others right just that's what i was curious about as well yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the the first example that always comes to mind is like when right wingers will tell you that they like they clearly enjoy triggering the libs. Um, also, there's a version of that on the left, right? Like of, of enjoy like or like provoking the libs in some sense, right? Um, oh, so yeah. the, the psychoanalyst you, uh, that I'm working from, Jacques Lacan, at one point makes this comment that the the way that uh, sadomasochism works in sexuality is that you're not actually trying to hurt someone or get hurt per se. Um, there's a, actually what you're what you're doing is like there's an element of anxiety provocation right you're trying to like like i guess like heighten the senses right or uh, there's something about this moment that feels more exciting if this new dynamic is introduced and lacan actually says that you know like when you're thinking of like not just in in terms of sexuality per se but uh the the way that people enjoy sadomasochistic behavioral patterns say in their in their life where where, like there's something that's self-destructive about this thing that i'm doing that i'm enjoying um it, it the, the the trick is it like a, I think the the broad liberal consensus is that right wingers will um, suffer in order to inflict harm right that is to to turn it back into the language we were just using that they will mm-hmm. allow for masochism in order to inflict sadism right so you get this interpretation a lot like um, why will uh, you know, conservatives uh, vote to take away their health care. Well, maybe it's because they don't want somebody else to have health care even more. Um, why do uh, women live with like authoritarian men? Maybe it's because like as long as they're white, they're, they're still like higher up in the hierarchy or something. So you get these types of interpretations. And one of the things that Lacan suggests is actually that the masochism is primary, that actually – uh, it's not that people are um, suffering in order to hurt others. It's that they're hurting others um, so as to distract from how much they're hurting themselves, right? Or to, to sort of take away from the awkwardness of realizing that maybe actually I don't have to live this life kind of conditioned by this very strict religion that like prohibits my access to various types of enjoyment and puts me in a sort of community that's always judging me all of the time. Maybe I don't actually have to do that, but like that, that, that would be very kind of difficult to realize. So maybe it's easier just to kind of say everybody who's not suffering like me, they're the real problem, right? Mm. But, but then that means that the, the, the way that you're judging outward is actually a defense for wanting to suffer yourself. Um, and I and so I know that a lot of people can't follow me there. I, I'm pretty convinced of it, but I'm aware that it sounds like a like a an, an absurd claim to say that the the, the self destruction is actually primary and the sadism is just an excuse to cover over the self destruction. Um, it but sure my, seems that way to me. I mean, just, just to chime you, in for a you. second. Yeah. I mean, like, uh-huh. like you're saying it, and, and it might sound strange to some people, but boy, it, 
<laughs> I mean, it really does seem like like that that mechanism is at work in a lot of people. Uh, I, I, you're you're agreeing with me. I thought you were about to drag me. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I well, I thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, my um, assumptions, like actually, we all deal with this. We we encounter this dynamic all of the time, right? Uh, we all have either ourselves or like a very close friend, um, you know, said the words like, "Well, I'm never going to like touch this substance again, or get back into that relationship again, or do whatever." And in the moment that somebody has to voice that what they're actually telling you is like i'm gonna do it but don't judge me too harshly for it right like i'm acting out in orders to to not be judged harsher like like i acknowledge that this is a problem Mm. so um so we get uh immense amounts of of satisfaction from making all sorts of catastrophically bad decisions and uh, one way i put it in the the world is like you know if if people destroy their families with uh sexual affairs every day why shouldn't the divine fantasy lead to the destruction of the entire world right (laughs) like why shouldn't it right Why, why shouldn't a culture with all sorts of fantasies about how how cool it is and how free it is and how unique it is why shouldn't that occasionally lead to the destruction of all things um it, it shouldn't seem that surprising if it does right that the, listening to your podcast uh um i thought of that ayn rand quote all the time of when i die it will not be me that dies but the world that ends <laughs> uh, have you ever heard that quote um I, I i don't know i can't see that they have uh and it just that that sort of uh, apocalyptic narcissism uh, was just it, it just I mean you weren't talking about Ayn Rand but yet somehow it fit in so nicely with a no, big chunk of the American ethos you know what I mean that's so cool yeah yeah no that that's wonderful that that is that is a uh, grade a uh, narcissism right there that, that's <laughs> right yeah I was just saying and um, how do you see um, to bring this into us uh, into uh, something more topical how do you see like all of the um, either I would say either overall, like, uh, right wing or even like just some of the more like, cause at some point I also want to get into like, you know, just an idea, you know, a, a brief, if you could, I mean, hell, even if my own education, just a brief explanation of like how some sort of like thanatotic or death drive rules, but just, just like the, you know, cause there's a lot of news, all the news coverage with like the, uh, the really, you know, full on fundy or evangelical churches that were like, you know, f- full on like opposite, you know, kind of like oppositional defiant disorder of, like yeah, we don't you know you know like fuck you we're gonna we're, we're gonna have church anyway and um, it's like you know at some point what was it um, there were people were making jokes about how parishioners so fired up as to like you know they they were gonna lick the floor just to prove that the mm. <laughs> or that they were or that they weren't afraid yeah, of yeah, it yeah, yeah. yeah no we do. I always I always kind of joke that um, I spent like you know the past couple of years trying to build like a very sophisticated academic <laughs> argument for the idea that. Um, reactionaries uh, and white evangelicals um, in, in general um, really love the idea of killing themselves off. Um, and then the COVID crisis comes through and just, you know, just people are just, you know, going to church and coughing on each other and just thinking it's the coolest thing in the world to take their masks off and like get in each other's faces. And, and it's absurd, right? And, and the important thing that we have to keep in mind is that if people are engaging in a pattern um, over and over, they're getting some sort of enjoyment. And that might be the enjoyment of like the danger itself, uh, the, uh, the enjoyment of of sort of flouting uh, a sort of narcissistic or even solipsistic, like I am the only thing that matters in the world, or our my group is the only thing that matters in the world, or whatever else. Um, it's selfish at, at the very, like in the in the nicest of terms that we can put it in, right? 
Yeah. Um, but when, when people are acting out that way, um, this is another dynamic that you get in psychoanalysis is that some acts that are in response to some sort of like structure, like you, like you, you know, you, you draw a line in the sand and you say like, you cannot step over this. Um, sometimes like when you, when you, make a decision to do something new in your life there's a there's a genuine kind of i don't know what comes next i just have to step out and risk something and maybe that's self-destructive but like i must do something um there can be something very healthy about that on the other hand there's the types of acts that are um uh what a, a psychoanalyst or even american psychologist would call acting out and when you're acting out you're acting as if the world is like a stage and you're performing something right, right. and i think that these protests are, are a very classic case of acting out they're not actually trying to affect something in the world they're just trying to display like my individuality i am like special uh you can't tell me what to do fuck you like i'm gonna cough on grandma if if i want to um and and it's gonna be hilarious if we all die right like we're gonna die free or something like that right let's say yeah wait where where does that come from or like what's the uh I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking: is there like some sort of like like mechanism like generating that, or or or, or is it just kind of this like weird like inco- incoherent inchoate like mishmash of a thousand and one different impulses and cultures, kind of like you know urging each other bits these like you know cultural forces urging each other on in like the worst way possible or something mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah well yeah, we could answer that from like the psychoanalytic or the marxian like way to think about that right or, or try to derive some sort of synthesis but um, I would say that broadly speaking, we're talking about a death drive. Okay. And, and I mean that in kind of a classic Freudian sense of like basically all of life is primed to eventually die, but also like, uh, you know, bodies that are in states of nervous tension want to go to untension. Um, bodies that are in motion want to go to rest. Uh, so, so we can talk about it kind of very, like we can give like the 30,000 feet uh, view of it there. But um, Lacan's innovation is to kind of say that actually all drives are death drives, right? We only enjoy if there's some potential of loss. Mm. Um, we enjoy if there's some sort of um, um, destructiveness to it. Um, one one way that Lacan talks about desire, for example, is that we don't actually desire the thing that we desire. Like the thing that we desire, the object of desire, right. is actually something that we enjoy more if we don't quite get it. Um, so we could go back to my example uh, before of like an addiction, right? Um, when somebody tells you that they like want to get clean, what they what they often want is like to kind of endlessly encircle getting very close to getting clean and getting their life back to together, right? But it's actually more fun to kind of slip up and go back into old patterns and old friendships or whatever else. Um, we could also talk about it like sexually, but I mean, cause that's where like this theory comes from is that like, if you have like an object of something that you want by the end of sex, namely like uh, orgasm, I, uh, each partner would like to, to have that experience somewhere in there. Um, you uh, you you also get a lot more enjoyment if you don't just like try to rush to that as quickly as possible, right? right? So, so like so actually the way that human desire works on all sorts of different levels is we think we desire this thing, but actually we want to kind of sabotage or postpone or evade getting the thing that we want because that produces more enjoyment. And if you do get exactly what you want, it has the effect of uh, of, of collapsing the drive. So um, that's kind of broadly how psychoanalytic theory thinks of desire. 
better in general. And, and to me, that seems like a very helpful thing of like when people say, like, I want this, like I want freedom, I want to open back up the economy. They're telling you all sorts of things, but they're telling you uh, something that is, is very kind of like a mere opposite of, of what they're actually consciously evoking. Mm. Uh, but they are communicating something. They are talking about like what they're, they're enjoying. And, and I think it's worth listening to that. Um, but all desires are, or drives at least are ultimately death drives, right? There's something excessive. Um, desire does not work the way that people want it to, right? There, there's mm. something like inherently unreasonable about like what we want and, and it can't be reasoned with. We can only like kind of listen to it and, uh, you know, I don't know, find ways to, to curate behavior if, if we really want to. Yeah. And so, does, does that make sense? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, certainly. So, so, so you're saying that the... Um, like the object of desire and say someone saying, you know, like, look, we need to reopen the economy and, and, and that sort of thing is uh, to hasten the sort of trajectory of destruction, self-destruction, so to speak. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, one of the arguments that I, I've never really put this in writing, except in my dissertation, which like three people read. Right. Um, but uh, hey, you got three. Wait, people to read the way that. Uh, sorry, what? I said, hey, you got three people to read your dissertation. All right. <laughs> well, they, you know, it's their job. They're That's the true. committee members <laughs> or whatever. So I, they, they got paid good money to do that. Um, is no, it available it, for free for listeners in case they're interested? It's on um, – I, I think it's You're, on like EBSCO or whatever. If you have like access to one of those like research journal like subscriptions or whatever, okay, you can okay. get like a copy of it. Um, but there's an argument that I try to build there that like something the, – the weird way that capitalism attenuates or adjusts the, the vectors of desire is that like we never um, – there's something about like the ideal worker in capitalism or somebody who thinks like who's really committed to the idea that they're a good worker and they're getting paid for what they're worth. And if everyone would just buck up, you could get the same thing that I've gotten or whatever. There's something about that consciousness that I think wants to be like an object of desire, like doesn't doesn't actually want to be a subject with, um, you know, vocations or desires or anything else, just like wants to impress the boss, for example, right? Like that, that, that subject to um, isn't really thinking like, okay, like this boss is exploiting me, like I'm never getting treated right. I'm obviously getting paid less than I'm worth or else I wouldn't be on this job. Um, like there's something uh, in like a particular type of consciousness that really needs to like have good workers think that they're getting what they deserve um, and, and your job in life should be to show up and dress for the job that you want and impress the boss and, and that's how you get ahead in life, right? And so that's a, that's a really weird thing to like like to create an economic system that gets people to want to be like churned up and alienated and exploited, right? But that's something that capitalism is clearly good at doing. Yeah. Now, there's a number of different ways that we could theorize that. I have I have a way of thinking about that in in my aforementioned dissertation. But what is clear is like, however we theorize that, there is something in our world that is making people really really enjoy getting churned up. And right now, the way that that is manifesting is people are trying to die so that the Dow can jump by like one percent, and it's going to fall by like three percent the next day. But if you can expose yourself to COVID and it jumps 1%, then like way to go, right? And, 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 and Trump will like stand there with his thumbs up, smiling, just saying, I'm loving it or, you know, something. And, and then like Daddy Trump is like, you know, told you that you're doing well. And, 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 that, and that's enough for some people, right? That should terrify all of us. Yeah. 
Well, that was that which reminded me that was the thing of like what uh, Dr. Bob Altmeyer's research when he was uh, at, I think he might be still teaching at the University of Manitoba. He was the one who wrote did a lot of research into like right wing authoritarians back during the W era, and even like, even wrote a book called The Authoritarians. That was a lot of research that helped that fed into John Dean's book from back then called Conservatives Without Conscience. But I think one of the things that he he found from his um, you know, this is in terms of like, uh, you know, more than a significant bit of the population who were kind of, um, you know, ride or die for the almighty leader. Uh, it was something like, like 20 to 25 percent of the American populace at any time would happily, you know, march us into like full on fascist dictatorship and think things are better for it, which is one of the reasons why, um, you know, no modern president, you know, this kind of uh, will ever their approval rating will never drop below a per certain percentage. I mean, W has sure. never dropped below, what was it, like 28%? And even the day that Nixon quit, it was still at like 19%. So, Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and also the... Um, the other thing it was it got me thinking of from Robert Robert O Paxton's book on the anatomy of fascism and he talked about how mm-hmm. fascism as a system is a uh, is effectively it is a desire to annihilate that will eventually annihilate itself where at some point mm-hmm. you know it, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it burns so much that eventually you know just it'll 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 it kind of it needs more fuel to burn and so eventually it'll just set fire to itself and there you go right yeah yeah when I read that book because I, I use some of his uh, definitions of fascism in my my fifth chapter and against and I, I what i one thing that i really felt like was helpful was that he's he kind of delineates fascism as being kind of like well all the western democracies are kind of in a pre-fascist yeah like could start lapsing into that direction right um so so we, we're kind of always there like right on the cusp of it but the final um, stage is you know, according to Fat Paxton, like it, it's either got to radicalize or, or die off of entropy, right? So, so you can never you can never hold steady at just this level, right? Which I, I think is kind of worth thinking about in a week where you know um, I don't know, like in the past week, the president said something like we should send the military in and and start shooting people or something like that, and you know signaled with like a comment about Second Amendment people, like you know just like basically like begging in a slightly plausibly denied way to like get people out there in the street shooting at people um you know like so that kind of thing that that can radicalize or it can die off and and regardless of which one happens people will say of course this was going to happen right Right. Um, but the truth is is that like the truth is is that like um, both of those options actually are real right like in retrospect they will look obvious like it had to happen but actually right now um donald trump could like uh keep ratcheting things up and the cops could say like oh this is awesome we're getting to brutalize people let's do more of this um or like by next week uh, you know somebody could say well you know maybe the stupid game show host is <laughs> is had his fun and we need to like kind of ratchet this down a little bit um either of those could happen uh, there, there's just there's no real reason why i one of them should happen right yeah. But but yeah i kind of took that from paxton i really appreciated the way that he kind of clarified that and and really talked about how common fascisms were in the west oh, especially yeah. in that world war ii era basically every western democracy yep. had some version of it yeah that's one thing yeah i got the, that was the thing i wanted to bring up but yeah a, a great thing from that book was pointing out that in every democracy you and this might even like connected to like maybe like some stuff that carl schmidt wrote about liberalism or uh and its failings or something but um but yeah even back then you had fascist movements 
everywhere, but they only, due to like a particular set of circumstances, they only really took hold in just a couple places. Whereas, you mm-hmm. know, they never really, they never, um, Mosley in the uh, in uh, and God, God, what was this party? Was was it was it it was it wasn't the National Front? I can't remember what what uh, Oswald Mosley's party was in the UK, but it was kind of like the British was it British fascists or something? Yeah, it was the UK yeah, fascist. I don't know what they were called either. Yeah, I I used to know. So my brain my mind is blanking because it you know whose mind can work properly. But anyway, yeah, it's like uh, it's you okay. Know. You've provided enough facts about the background. Yeah, but it's just like, who yeah, wants it, to look it up. Yeah, UK stuff or you know uh, American uh, American America first stuff. And yeah, that's it, folks look it up. There was a yeah, uh, and they literally called it that, right? Yeah, so. and the, yeah, they, and then that's the thing. And you even have people like literally using that language again. But it's I mean, in 1939, you had they sold out Madison Square Garden for this huge, effectively like borderline American Nazi rally only. They had mm-hmm. you know huge banners of like George Washington instead. So, mm-hmm. but um, Garrett, did you have a question or did you have anything? Or um, well, I think well you brought up uh, just a moment ago the the notion of and this was in the podcast uh, uh, Tad's podcast the the, the and I'm, I'm probably going to get the terminology right because I'm not quite sharp on the sort of um, you know you know critical theory. Uh, uh, jargon, so to speak, but the notion of a, what was it, a free-floating signifier and that of the the nation being the free-floating signifier, is that was that the term you used? Oh, yeah, so that's from a theorist called Ernesto Laclau, who yeah. um, talks a lot about populism, which is a contested term, obviously, because populism clearly doesn't have like a political program. Right. Um, I, I read I a bit of dissert- that on populist reason. I didn't finish it, but I, I read right. the first yeah. like, so, four so, chapters. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in that book, and he, I mean, he's he is a uh, he's a hard person to read. Uh, so, I, yeah. So, but uh, I wrote my dissertation on those theories of populism uh, during the 2016 campaign, which is kind of like a weird time because you'd like simultaneously simultaneously had these movements um, on the center left with uh, Bernie Sanders, and then the ultra right with with Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we hadn't had like a real genuine populist movement that wasn't just funneled by money in, in several generations, right? Um, so it was an interesting time to do it. But yeah, LeClau, he's done a lot of work on um, various populist movements in the world. And one of the things that he talks about is the difference between an empty signifier and a floating signifier, which I think is is what you're talking about. Right. Where so like an empty signifier for him is like the classic empty signifier is like the people. It's it's a it's sort of a rallying cry, but it doesn't really mean much. But it it can be like an empty signif. It's an empty signifier precisely because it can capture anything, and you can kind of stick it out there, and people can attach to it. Like um, America. America- yeah, like real Americans, right? Yeah, was a class yeah. was a was a for like about ten years. Not not quite so much anymore. Um, but like you could even argue that MAGA kind of works this way. Like it's right. a little more specific in terms of its program. But like the the sheer language of "Make America Great Again" is completely meaningless drivel, right? But it but it rallies a, a specific group. Um, and then secondly, for LeCloud, the floating signifier is what comes along and sort of curates the 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 empty signifier so it supports it but the floating signifier means something very specific but never what it means right so if let's say maga is a 
empty signifier that rallies a particular group. A floating signifier might be like law and order, right? Which means a very specific thing, but the opposite of what it says, right? Um, it says law and order, but it actually means brutalize people of color, like kick those leftist kids to the curb, right. pepper spray the crowds or whatever else, right? Yeah. So so it means something very specific, but it, it's, a, it's serving kind of a serving, a, a, like a, um, I don't know, like an adjudicating or sort of curating role around the signifier. So you have this in religions too, right? Like Christian means like nothing um but you have like various doctrines that'll say like um i don't know uh, biblical inerrancy right uh which which like pl- claims that the bible is like without error but actually it was an idea that kind of sprung up around slavery in order to justify like well it says here in the text that like we can keep slaves so yeah. we're going to be biblical literalists because we we love god or something mm-hmm. like that right so, so you have these all over the place in politics religion um all sorts of cultural applications we could draw there. I was going to say, yeah, wouldn't at this point the ter- maybe it's just because it more more it's like a completely vulgarized term, but just like the I think the two the, it's like the two things that get thrown around. I don't know if they would qualify as either empty or floating, but either the term millennial or the term antifa. Whereas millennia mm-hmm. is kind of at one point started as the meaning a specific set of people at a particular age and now is usually just used by aging uh, columnists and newspaper editors to mean you know to refer to you know kids today or you know it's like the one point it's pretty much for them to complain about what they hate about their own children are doing or something <laughs> yeah why won't my kids call me anymore <laughs> they yeah, right. feel nothing but contempt for me or something yes <laughs> yeah yeah um i my my inclination is that uh the the confusion of a millennial i mean i'm an older millennial I, i'm 34 but like there's millennials that are older than me um so like you know like the average millennial on like a college campus today is is a professor right yeah, yeah, um, so yeah. like but uh, you know, so to, to take like an example from my life, um, but uh, I, to me, that's just kind of a, a weird like inability of people to think like how age works or like that, that the world is getting older and they're getting older along with it. Um, I think this example of uh, Antifa is interesting though, right? Because that that is saying something very specific. And when um, I mean, we saw this this week for those listening, like this is the the week where we started floating the idea of like treating Antifa as a terrorist organization um and there's no organization right like it's specifically but like anybody who i mean the liberal like move is to come in and say like aha i got you you've uh entered in the realm of of uh inaccuracy uh you know whereas like you know tom cotton just comes in and says like yeah like we're just trying to like kill everybody like that that's what that's what we want right so like they're obviously like when you accuse antifa of being a terrorist organization it's not just empty it's not stupid right like it's doing a very very specific thing yeah um and if you want to play like the hypocrisy game (laughs) uh you're you're losing right like you're the one that's in the wrong right they're not being hypocrites they they know what they're doing uh when when they when they are they're like and, and this again is something that like if by next week people were um completely backing off the antifa thing or if they were uh charging just your average everyday protester with terrorism charges um, or if there were drones circling around like the, the houses of lead organizers, none of that would feel that surprising at this right. point, right? Well, so, but that's because it's a very specific claim, just not what it claims to be. Yeah. I mean, they they did. Somebody spotted that they were, they were flying. Um, I don't know if it was like, I think it was like somebody like, like 
Customs and Border Patrol so were flying a drone around Minneapolis this week. Actually, shit, last last week too, because since since they've been under like mm-hmm. full mm-hmm. occupation. I think use this as a transition point because you bring up hypocrisy. Can you get into just the um, the contrasting uses of like, hypocrisy? I think between what, uh, like I said, they because um, we've talked about how like you know kind of you know Trumpy or evangelical types kind of like luxu- you know use this as a way to luxuriate in it. Cause I think you've written, mm-hmm. definitely written about hypocrisy, but but I'm also curious about talk about how it functions as like this liberal totem where. Like almost like an obsessive point, where yeah, yeah. If 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 you could speak on that, yeah, yeah. So like the the thing about hypocrisy is that it, there there is like a sense in which if you're accusing somebody of clearly transgressing some line into hypocrisy, they probably factually are in some sense. Like there's right. probably something you can actually point to. Uh, the catch is that it doesn't matter, right? If you are if you feel like you need to actually spend energy clarifying why someone is a hypocrite uh you are already caught in the game right you you have been duped not them right like that's that's the then this is like an observation that lacan makes at some point of uh you know like with the, with the problem is like when, whenever you're calling someone a dupe um the, the, there is a fair chance that actually you have been duped and like you just think that they actually care about the thing that they just said that you're like haha well like technically uh, you're incorrect sir or something like <laughs> that right um the, the problem with like hypocrisy is like hypo- if i say something and i do another i'm pleasing myself in multiple different ways right i'm um let's say i I know I shouldn't do something, but I, nevertheless, I do. Um, well, in Freudian language, I, I get to please the id, ego, and superego all at once, right? I get to do the thing that I want to do. That's the id, like, base drive thing, whatever my body has told me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I get to please the ego by, like, keeping a separate version of me that uh, knows I shouldn't have done that or, um, you know, like, or I get to do the thing that I actually want in my conscious mind. Um, and, and then I kind of get to, like, you know um, – like you know wave at the superego that's judging me for doing like having this like conflict and kind of say like hi superego like i understand i shouldn't have done this uh, but we both know that i'm actually a good person so like you know uh, it won't do it again um so, so like hypocrisy lets us kind of um, enjoy multiple different tiers at once right mm-hmm. and I, I think it's very close to the idea of of bullshit right so like the, there's at one point lacan has this helpful uh, idea, I think, where he says the thing that that uh, messes with you when somebody is bullshitting you, right? When somebody is saying something that cannot possibly be true, and you can't quite figure out if they're just an idiot or if they like know what they're doing, but like you can't figure out what their actual motive is. Like we've all been there, where we were like spending days trying to parse out what someone's motives could have possibly been to do that thing that they just did. Mm-hmm. So, like the thing that bothers you about um, bullshit is that you can't figure out what the other person is enjoying right i mean like that that's one way that that lacan puts it is like you can't figure out what they're doing with their jouissance what what they're enjoying um you know are they are they enjoying just lying to me because they can get away with it are they watching me squirm and enjoying that um are they just kind of an idiot and enjoying their naivety like i don't know and and that's what's infuriating about getting bullshitted or um hearing some sort of like uh, often hypocrisy comes like in the form of very overt bullshit right so um 
Um, see, yeah, so like that, that's broadly how I kind of think of it. I, I think that hypocrisy attacks are very in- interesting to listen to because it's a very weak position to argue from. And when somebody, um, particularly like when liberals accuse conservatives of hypocrisy, what they're telling you is that like the liberals telling you they are they are ready to lose in order to like catch someone on a technicality, right? Um, so so they, they will be they will be screaming hypocrisy um, when the Proud Boys are marching in the streets open carry. Right, you know, like that—that's the—that's the—that's why it's actually dangerous. Yeah, I was gonna say, what, what do you think, um, either culturally or even like ideologically, like, like hypocrisy serves in, uh, in that particular to act as such a, like a power, powerful totem uh, that is like, hey, they—they—they they, they, gets latched onto so much like that for as a way to like, you know, ah, ha then by you know. You know, by your logic, you know, ex, you know, yada yada yada. Is it, yeah, and is it a fantasy sort of uh, in a similar sense, like, uh, but 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 uh, delineated more from the Enlightenment than from like a from like a Christianity? Does that make sense? Um. Well, I don't. I don't know. Maybe let me say this, and, and if this doesn't answer it, maybe we can circle back to it. Um, I, I think that the the impulse to label things as hypocritical isn't necessarily bad. Right. Um, I, I think it does seem to come, uh, as far as I can read it, from a I think rather pure, even if naive, impulse to think that we're not actually on sides here, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's something very scary about the idea that maybe. Um, a lot of the population is lost, right? Maybe, maybe my own family members or former friends are, are kind of lost at this point. And, mm-hmm. and it would be really good to kind of just be able to say, well, they're technically being hypocritical. And if I can just fact check them or throw some infographic at them, then they would realize the error of their ways and like come back to the light. Right. Um, it, it's much more terrifying to kind of say, what if, what if actually, I know a good number of people who would gladly put a bullet in my back if they were given permission, right? <laughs> what, if, what if actually we're kind of in dangerous territory and there are people out there who, like, when someone says, like, Black Lives Matter, for example, um, someone else says, no, no, they don't, right? And it has some creative way of saying that. Um, but, like, but I, so I, th- I think part of the impulse to call things hypocritical comes from this refusal to think that there actually are sides. And, and this is um, where I kind of ironically, I guess, draw on Schmidt, right? Who, who does say, like, actually, a, a lot of politics is like picking sides and, and being real about the fact that, that we have like incommensurable differences of, of desire at the mm. end of the day. Oh, okay, cool. So I don't, I don't know if that actually got to what you were saying or not. But <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I, I think that yeah, that was helpful. I, I guess all, I guess all I'm saying is, it seems to me that like when I hear this, uh, this hypocrisy, uh, um, you know, sort of engagement go on, it, it seems like yeah, that there is, there is some wish, some unconscious wish that we don't have sides, as, as I guess you just said, like, like mm-hmm. that there isn't this tension there. Um, that and that and that if there is attention, it can be ameliorated by a sort of enlightenment style engagement, a mm-hmm. a um, using reason to to uh, disarm your opponent, so to speak. So, but yeah, I, right, I, yeah, I think that, yeah, and, and it's a very it's a very um, reactionary way of thinking, right? Like 
the the proper left wing analysis is that actually whatever we're talking about is driven by material conditions, right? right? right. Whether they're relations of of economy or they're like biological, uh, it, like and you know, probably what we're talking about in terms of cultural conflict today is all just relations of production, right? Um, there there are particular relations and there are particular hierarchies that emerge out of that, and those hierarchies are being questioned. So people are finding new ways, like stupider and stupider ways, to do new types of fascism, right? <laughs> Right? So, um, so, so that's that's the that's the real problem. And if you don't want to get rid of that apparatus um, that is causing that conflict, namely like overthrowing those types of relations of production, mm-hmm. then what you're left with is thinking that people are being illogical and can be fact checked, right? And and that's that's the illusion is that that capitalism and the social conditions that it creates can just be ameliorated by everyone being nicer, being slightly more pure, um, fact checking ourselves whenever we are on the wrong track and that's it and it, but nothing actually needs to change right yeah it's something that that actually kind of reminds me of um something i've encountered elsewhere with the problem is, is like i haven't read enough of my greek classics but it's you know it's like it's like hitting and hitting the sense that but you know evil you know evil acts are only or evil impulses only come from like a lack of education or a lack of knowledge and yeah 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 that was that was a position of of socrates or that Plato uh, echoes. Okay, so yeah, that that was, and it's so, and so yeah, so the so the the impulses is like here, and this this goes back. I mean, this like George Lakoff has written about this for twenty years and everything. But it's like yeah, the impulse goes back to even say like back during the uh, during the W years where. Um, like a lot of people had that impulse of just like, hey, if we just had this, uh, just told people that don't know, they, they didn't find, you know, point out the facts of, uh, they didn't find weapons of mass destruction that that would automatically change people's minds and, and Mm -hmm. kind of like the inability to understand like how people, you know, how those thought processes actually worked. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I'm, I'm like fully avidly against, uh, uh, Socrates on that point. (laughs) It seems like intuitively it's just, it's a really stupid idea that, I mean, he defends it by saying like, well, you know, every time you've made a bad decision and hurt yourself, if if you had known that actually it was going to cause unhealth instead of health to drink all this stuff, like, wouldn't you have not drink all that wine if you'd known it was going to make you feel bad the next day? Um, well, the truth is, I think actually like the, the fear of the hangover, Uh, can actually be like one of the things that you enjoy the night of. You're like, ah, oh, it's gonna it's gonna be a rough morning in the next day, but like you know, here I am nonetheless, right? Um, to I mean, could kind of use the types of examples that he causes. Um, to use the Bush example, though, um, no weapons of mass destruction were just like the excuse, right? Like that wasn't the motive; that was just the excuse. Yeah. Um, so if you know if if you had taken that away from people and said like, actually, there's no weapons of mass destruction, they would have said like, well, but how are we gonna kill people then? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like we 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 need to have some <laughs> some excuse to to uh, kill two million people. Yeah. Like, we got to have our fun some way, right? So. Yeah, and, uh, and good. Actually, that that kind of hits something else that I wanted to, that I wanted to mention is that can you talk about the just the the functions of projection and pretense? Because like a lot of like it's it seems like um, what was it? Somebody I can't remember who was it, but it was almost it was a joke that like you know every right wing attack is just a pro- is just a pro- is a projection of stuff that they wanted to do, or like even <laughs> claims that were claims that were completely bullshit were just going to be like this. 
uh, were made as a pretense uh, for them to justify stuff or pre- to excuse or justify stuff that they'd wanted to do whatsoever, you know, anyway. It's kind of like, you know, like it's like the Fox News fair and balanced thing of like, well, here, you know, if, you know, we'll use the pre, we'll use the slam of like everybody else's bias. So we're going to, you know, just to indulge our, you know, to excuse ourselves from, you know, um, you know, slanting the stuff already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, a couple different things is uh, well, to, to some degree. Yeah, of course, if I if I want to brutalize somebody, I need to re- think that they're going to brutalize me first. Right. Right. Um, th- that's why every war has like two sides. Right. Like the, the defense and the preemptive defense. Right. Like every every war in history <laughs> has like those two sides at work. Like nobody ever considers themselves like just a brutal attacker. Um, almost nobody if, to take an example from the current moment. Almost nobody uh, considers themselves a bigot. Right. Very very, very rarely would anybody say that, like, actually, I have a conscious, irrational hatred of people of color or something like that. Um, so the the conscious um, uh, uh, experience clearly does not matter. But the way that we um, fetishize symbols or create fantasies matters quite a bit for how we kind of justify our existence. So Lacan, at some point, says something to the effect of, like, the subject hallucinates his world, <laughs> right? Like, we're actually always kind of... Um, not just writing our history in the present and giving ourselves justifications for why we do the things that we do, but actually we're always adjusting backwards too, right? We're always kind of uh, pulling up old memories and, and trying to figure out a way that we could have been in the right about that time or something like that, right? And we're always kind of adjusting. So our histories are constantly changing. And, you know, if you interacted with somebody 10 years ago, like contentiously, you you probably don't just like have different like you probably both have like dramatically different ways of, of understanding that event now mm-hmm. uh, than either of you did at the time so so we're always hallucinating things but um, also uh, I'm blinking uh, you said something else that I wanted to um, hit on oh um, I remember what it was and I there's a psychoanalyst I know here in um, Denver who once said something that I really like uh, she said uh, it's it's never the case that um, it matters what the subject um, uh, what she said it reality doesn't matter what matters is what the subject says about reality um, and, and like to some extent that that's absurd really like clearly right. actually reality matters quite a bit um, but as far as how I interact with other people actually reality doesn't matter that much like whether somebody wronged me or not what what matters is how I perceive that person to have acted towards me mm-hmm. so so, so it's not it's not reality that matters. It's what the subject says about reality, and um, I don't know. Like that, there might be something toxic about, like for example, like an entire generation of boomers like tuning into Fox and hearing that their grandchildren hate them and are trying to destroy everything that they ever stood for every night. Right? Um, at some point, like if you're playing the game of like, well, technically that's not true. Um, Regardless of whether it's true or not, like, yeah. like I'm, I'm all for the downfall of America, right? But like, let's say it wasn't true. Um, it, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, what what matters is that they're they're thinking that all of the time, right? And they're they're stewing, you know, combined with like, why does why won't my nephew like friend me on Facebook anymore now that just because I do racism or something like like then and once you start telling yourself that reality, you can start to um, pull apart in in um, completely irreparable ways uh, the, the farther we get. So. Anyways, um, I guess like all to kind of sum that up, then um, I, I would I would challenge people to kind of think about the problem of like, are you talking about some like a like a, a social problem where reality matters or where it, it only matters what people say about reality? Right. Because one of those is one of those is like well outside of your control and all in the head of the other person. 
Yeah, and it's um, and actually, I'm one of the many things I'm reminded of something that uh, Joshua Khan Russell from the Wildfire Project has mentioned that like when the when the shutdown protests first kicked off forever ago, I don't know, like, well, maybe, or a month ago or something, like he was more interested in um, <laughs> like the like how they functioned and what they you know it's like not so much like what they what the people were claiming, but it was more of like how they um. God, it was like you know, it's like it's more of like what function did they serve and like why, what was actually going on? You know, what did the people who participated in them actually think, or even or even like you know how were they or just as a as a movement, uh, a bit of movement analysis, like you know how did they uh, how did they start? How did they get funded? And how did they spread? So, mm-hmm. um, we're an hour, and does anybody need to take a break or anything? You're doing, or are you guys all good? I, I wouldn't mind taking a quick one if it's all right with everybody else. Sure. Just five, five minutes. minutes. Just five minutes. Also, or so. Garrett, you are okay. you are buzzing again. Oh, okay. I'll restart. All right. Cool. Thanks. All right. Uh, see y'all in like five minutes. I'm gonna go refill five my minutes. water. All right. Very good. Yep. Thanks. How have you? Uh, how have you been? Uh, have you been teaching much since the uh, since lockdown? Or yeah, we all got converted to online, like, and had like a day to do it. So. Um, for me, that was really easy because I do like a lot of online courses already. Right. Um, but I mean, it's not ideal. Like, it's like online education is not. The, it's not the same, and not just like different. It's like it's it's inferior to in person education. So, um, I don't know. I can't wait to be back in the classroom, and I'm kind of horrified at the same time that they're going to try to do it in the fall. So yeah, and it's the that's the thing is uh, I mean I just I'm recorded just in fact I'm just about to put on an episode talk talking to other people who have done both. Uh, we, we did an episode talking to a couple like college educators about teaching online, and then one with, with some like grade school and community college people about teaching online. And even each of them had even had some experience, and they're like, "Yeah, this is this is garbage. It doesn't work." Which yeah, is. it is. Yeah, um, yeah. The, I mean, and that's going to be the the thing that comes out of this is trying to move more classes online, and um, it, it, it's it's kind of weird because it's actually like it's actually more expensive to do online education yeah. <laughs> in a weird way. Um, but they'll they'll still do that because I guess there's like there's a lot more capital to invest in Zoom and the various other web tools that we use than uh, in like a physical building. Yeah. Um, so it's not. It's a, that's the weird catch. Is like it's not even cheaper and inferior. It's just inferior and more expensive. Yeah. So like, of course, capital's going to do that. Yeah. It's, a, it's like healthcare. So, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's it's worse for everybody and it costs more. So go right ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll yeah. get schmucks like Cuomo or whoever kind of using or you know whatever Bill Gates backed group trying to use this as a. Uh, as they like, see everyone, you know, now we have experience doing this stuff, it, but only as, like, right. a, as an excuse to, uh, you know, again, to, you know, cut schooling and to uh, try to bust teachers unions or something. Yeah. Well, it's, it's that like Klein shock doctrine type right. idea, right? Yeah. Like not only is a disaster, a good opportunity to um, burn everything to the ground and privatize everything. It's also a great opportunity to do it in the most expensive way possible, right? Um, and then funnel all of those those public tax dollars to corporations. So yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm expecting. And um, like, I don't know, I'm I'm pretty like I'm 
I'm not too worried about it for myself in terms of like the health effects, but um, like my wife and I are having our first child in a few weeks, and oh boy, uh, so like that type of thing is terrifying to me. That like my schools are gonna ask me to be like in a dangerous situation. So and like professors, since the vast vast majority of us are adjuncts, even if like four of my schools do the right thing and stay off campus in the fall <laughs> maybe the fifth one will say like well we're gonna bring everyone back and and expose everyone so yeah you know and so yeah that's been the fun thing is like it's at some point everybody has been um not only um what's well, gonna not only is you know you have the the fun bit of like everyone who was previously called unskilled is now called essential but it's like it's like right. our to a certain extent we're all coal miners where as a you know capitalism is such that it's, it's work or die and but now it's i guess what in the in, in the new era it's you know work and die and mm-hmm. you know it's like good luck you know it's like unless you can uh you know freelance or stay at home or something <laughs> how um absolutely yeah uh how is uh how has denver been doing with like the uh with how's the denver uprising been going i think there's a, we'll, we'll hear we, like, we'll hear i think there's some news bits that will get trick well, that'll get trickle trickle out to here but yeah yeah no it's actually i i it's i've been so happy to see it and i i'm kind of i'm absolutely heartbroken because i've been a part of every major protest movement since occupy right and right now if i if i did catch the virus i would absolutely miss the birth of my child in a few weeks so um because of that i'm having to sit it out and it's driving me absolutely nuts um but I've been like thrilled to see like tons of people out. Uh, we just had like a federal court order last night that um, prohibited the use of like rubber bullets and tear gas and all of that. So I'm kind of interested in seeing what what's going to happen tonight. Yeah. Um, whether whether the cops are just kind of blow that off or or if something actually kind of changes in the tone. Um, and I don't know. It's it's a, it's a weird position because we have like a very. Um, we have like a mild liberal governor um, and like Denver's like somewhat progressive, I guess. But like um, the rest of the state is also like very conservative and Denver, um, I mean, like Colorado voted to remove slavery from our constitution during the 2018 midterms um, by like, I think something like two thirds or three quarters. Like there was still like you know, quite a pushback on that. Um, and also and also at that same time, we voted to start decriminalizing uh, shrooms, but the ordinance to make it legal for homeless people to um, sleep on the streets did not pass. Right. Um, so so like that, that's the type of situation yeah. that we're in. Right. Like where you can kind of say we're super progressive like we can have all of the cannabis you can even start to do the shrooms um but like let's not sleep on the streets yeah. okay so yeah con- that's that's my world here yeah con- uh, yeah one creates a market and the other one doesn't right yeah, so yeah. um but we do have like one thing that's been incredibly encouraging is we have this like um just absolute star like 21 year old um african-american male who's uh on the school board now like 21 years old and he's led the charge on so many of the um the the types of things that have been going on um recently oh, sorry uh, just like in the last day or so uh he rallied the rest of the board to terminate their contract with uh, the, the school's contracts with uh the police department 
event. So, um, so you know, assuming that all goes through, we'll no longer have cops actually on site at our schools here. So that'll be nice. Yeah, that'll help. Yeah, that's one thing. Is like with all the stuff with the uh, with all the cons- with all the proposals going on. Is like at least something you know. Firm changes, you know, being able to get through with that thing. Yeah, uh, Portland just I think Portland Public Schools just announced that they're they were severing their connections too earlier this week. Just to, just insane of just thinking about you know how cops in your fucking school is a is a normal thing for for kids for like the last fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. I guess, uh, Tad, what's it been like trying trying to ex- you know explain this kind of stuff to folks who say are who hold on who hold on to these conceptions really hard? It's like how, how have you had to like you know gently disillusion people, um, <laughs> as, you know for for the pre- you know from their previous kind of you know you know slowly prick the balloon of their massive naivete on this stuff. Yeah, well, um, I will say first off, I don't actually try to convince people who aren't interested in in thinking about these things, right? So I'm I'm never in a situation where I'm just like arguing back and forth with somebody. Um, I tend to encounter two primary audiences that are interested in my work. One is people who come out of it and are like as adults, very ready to start thinking through like some of their prior commitments and and genuinely usually feel quite a bit of angst as I did too when I was just coming out of that world Mm-hmm. of like this sort of reactionary world um, and then like the other is uh, with students in the classroom um, and the the problem there is that the power dynamics are such that like you just can't really have that same conversation because especially if somebody comes from a very conservative background um, as a student they are they are sort of told over and over that a professor is a vindictive asshole who's trying to like propagandize you and if is not successful will penalize you right professor Kevin Sorbo I am Professor Radisson. This is Philosophy 150, Introduction to Philosophical Thought. This semester I propose that we refuse to waste our limited time together debating the existence of the big man in the sky, the useful fairy tale in ages gone by. I would like to bypass this senseless debate altogether and jump to the conclusion which every sophomore is already aware of, there is no God. All that I require from each of you that you fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words, God is dead, along with your signature. Right, yeah, from God's not dead, right? Um, like, you know, like that that type of scene, like, right, God is dead, or you're, you know, defend his existence, right? I would lose my job instantly if they, like, <laughs> like no professor could ever do something like that. Um, but, like, that is the exact image that a lot of students come into the classroom with. Um, and so I'm often working with, you know, like, I assume that my students are demographically pretty regular, right? So, like, probably about a third of them don't believe in evolution. Um, probably something like a third of them believe that the world's going to end in the next 100 
100 years or something like that and doesn't care about climate change or anything like that. Um, so, like, uh, you know, whatever. Like, the, I, I assume that I have a pretty demographically standard um, audience that I'm speaking to inside of a classroom, right? So when you move out of the zone of, like, this is an audience to, like, these are students that I'm trying to interact with, that that is actually a real challenge because the, the impulse from a student is very often to just say, well, I don't believe that, right? And, and it's not like I have a I have a reason not to believe that or I have evidence or I have like this argument. It's just like um, students are very comfortable just telling you like whatever you just said, like that whole scholarship, like however many years or decades you've studied this thing, like I just, I feel differently. Uh, everything that guy just says, bullshit. Thank you. Um, and, and that can be like really frustrating, but again, my, my job is not to... Um, uh, make them believe like they can believe whatever they want they can believe the earth is is flat if, for all i care um right like, i would like to see some some growth in in that world um but it's it's not my job and I, I see my job in the classroom is just to incite some interest right so um so i'm not going to argue with the super evangelical student who's not ready to move on from that world but when a student uh you know um comes to me with like a printout of like the communist manifesto and like has things underlined and wants to ask me questions like that's genuinely exciting to me right. right so like i'll spend a lot of time with that student um but yeah but so it just kind of depends like am i talking about like my public kind of persona like scholarship speaking role or am i talking about my teacher role and, and those are those are two very different things because my my job in one is to talk about what i think and my job in the other is to get kids to think um or at least to read books right gotcha. so yeah. um so yeah so so it, it really just kind of depends um and uh, I guess my scholarship doesn't really apply to my classroom, except in the instances where it does, right? Like, so I teach a lot of ethics, for example. Um, well, I don't do as much ethics in my private work, but when I do world religions, on, on the, when we get to the monotheisms, my work starts to apply a little more. So, so I don't know, you know, it depends. Yeah, I was going to say, because I just know myself personally, it's I've no, noticed that, especially in the last week and a half, just the... Um, just a very a, 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 a real struggle to kind of um of like having to deal with the immense amounts of like naivete out there from people who sh who are you know should know better either that i know personally in, in the real world or you know online figures who are, are ostensibly paid to know this shit and it's almost a thing of like just the difficulty of restraining yourself from like not like just launching into just kind of like you know just carpet bombing them with uh you know excoriating them like you like, goddamn you, you stupid fucking liberal what the hell you you know anyway like, this is how it is and how it's always been and this is right. anyway you know it's like funny how the right la yeah but somebody who would lose their job for like having a thought right yeah uh, you know that's the catch right is that is you want to like tell someone to have thoughts and and having thoughts might might cause them to to lose the very little that they that they still have that they're hanging on to it'd be interesting to see what exactly causes chris hayes to break on camera um but yeah you know funny how like the last how the the last like two or three months over and over again has kind of proven right everything leftists have been talking about for decades and it's yeah. kind of like and it's like how uh reality has shown i mean even just like the like the the, the first step of like you know all the uh, all, you know everything that uh, you know the bernie campaign was coming was calling for right as that campaign kind of fell apart or ended turns out like mm -hmm. everything you know not only did 
it's like the reality showed us the need of all that stuff plus also support for it started you know rising and yeah anyway yeah yeah i thought the bernie campaign was one of the most genuinely exciting things that i've ever seen in a, in american politics right um and and to see the way that that was just like uh, i don't know suppressed attack manufactured consented out of out of the zone yeah. um was was really heartbreaking to because i i do kind of think of that as like the the sort of the last off ramp from like a, a climate apocalypse and you know i mean maybe there's other ways to kind of off ramp from like a civil war apop- apocalypse but um like long term like that that did seem to actually be kind of a, an off ramp and and now we are not going to take it and um you know, here we go. <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah, that that the you know, that uh, that dialectical uh, is going to make things. Uh, it's going to be a real fun roller coaster. One thing that actually just I did think about, and this is a bit more of a broader topic, but um, especially because, as you mentioned, yeah, you came out of like the the very like uh, uh, right wing evangelical milieu. Uh, have you have you ever listened to the podcast called Good Christian Fun? Uh, I know I know I've heard of it. I know I've never listened to it though. Okay, I think you might my my partner listens to it. It just I was like, was like she's a much more like you know non practicing Jewish background, and that's just like this weird object of curiosity. And it's kind of like the host, you know the the three hosts are all kind of like former evangelical types who take a piece of um, you know Christian branded pop culture and get in just kind of di- dissect it and one of the things mm-hmm. i just w- did want to ask and from a cultural st- standpoint is like how does um kind of like evangelical pop culture function in terms of like it's almost like as a um i guess is even like between like tribal gatekeeping but almost it's like this kind of like funhouse mirror like air sats version of things that are going on in like the in you know in, in like in like the regular pop culture version is like they also needed their mm-hmm. own they have their own you know everything from like Kevin Sorbo movies um mm-hmm. and the wide the wide gamut of those from the him as professor to him as father in a movie where he is to, where is marketed as like fighting now fantifa that but turns out that's not actually what it's about but yeah, can oh, you yeah. Yeah, can, can you <laughs> no, t- I haven't seen that one um I don't even know if that one's out actually is it, it? I, the the gun yeah, movie or yeah whatever. it's um, one of those things where I think yeah it's it's bizarre there's, there's well you know, I'll say like growing up like very much this, I grew up in Little Rock Arkansas and um I'm 34 years Years old, so like I was like a '90s kid. I graduated high school in 2004. Um, so like that, the time frame, like wise, that's that's what we're talking about. Um, when I was like growing up in that world, there was there there was like the the pop culture aspect was like very mirrored, right? Like I like there was like a Christian, like if you walk into a Christian store, right? Like in the South, there's lots of Christian stores. Right. Um, if you walk into a Christian store, the music section at that time, back when everything with cds would literally like have sections that would say like if you like um i don't know acdc like you might like like the, the bands <laughs> in this section right like there would be like very kind of explicitly mirrored not just like artistically copying but like literally in print they would tell you what they're copying um so, so there, there was a mirroring aspect there 
Um, and then, man, I, this is a great question. I've not actually thought about this a whole lot. Um, I'm actually like really cut off from that Christian culture now, very intentionally. I, I've just kind of I don't have much contact, and I, I really kind of study like the the doctrinal ideas and like the political trends, but not so much the culture and the music as much anymore. Um, but I have kept that up way. with the the God's Not Dead uh, franchise, which I think is I just I find it so delightful. Um, in in the second two movies were filmed in Arkansas, right? So like the second one was filmed at um, the the, the the capital where the court case is going on is actually the like in the town that I was raised in and the third one um, where like there's a church that gets burned down on a college campus or something like that that was actually filmed on my college campus that I went to huh. so I I actually so so yeah so um in in like in the first one of course like the atheist professor who's like challenging kids like you know he gets killed off to you know, sorry to spoil things for any of your listeners <laughs> um, but like so. I just I mean what I love about this franchise is like just the the pure like victim blame like the victim complex um, there's very weird racial stereotypes like there's like a happy African sidekick who's just there to kind of like smile big and say God is good all the time right? and like it, it, that's all that you can think as a Christian in Africa is like God is good all the time um, and like so there's these weird racial stereotypes but I really love the film series for like because it's it's something that was filmed filmed um, in my hometown and on my college campus that literally fantasizes about killing professors like me. Um, and not every professor gets to have that, right? Like not every professor has films that fantasize about killing you on your own college campus. Um, so yeah, so like that's, um, I don't know what to say. You, you have probably had something more substantial to oh, say there, oh, but hell no. um, <laughs> the, those, those, um, you know, like there's, there's the copying aspect and then there's like the, like there's the, there's telling the child that you don't have to have this other thing. There's the purely propaganda aspect that that company pure flex that Sorbo made with like God's not dead and all that. Oh yeah. Um, they, they also made, um, a film that I talk about briefly and against, which is mirrored on one of the martyr stories that came out of the Columbine shooting in 1999 um, so there was a story um, about uh, two different girls like at different times like so this is a story that didn't actually happen but there yeah. was a very popular story that a girl confessed her faith to the shooters and then they killed her for it yeah. um, later on that story got transferred to another girl eyewitnesses at the time said that this didn't happen um, really what the shooter did is peeked under a desk and said peekaboo um, and then shot her without querying her faith um, there was another girl who was apparently asked if she was a Christian and she was shot, but she lived. Um, so, so like this, this, that's a very weird thing of like, you could be watching this film in Christian culture today about like somebody who bravely told a gunman, yes, I am a Christian and was shot for it and not even piece together that the person that this is about is not even the same person that already it was fictionalized like in 1999 but it was a different person at that time um so, so yeah so this happens all the time right like this is the same thing that happens in fox news right of like the, the facts don't matter all that matters is that you are being persecuted and you're told you're being persecuted all the time um and uh if you want to take a break from the persecution uh we have like really flashy lights and sounds and all of that and it'll you know it'll keep you entertained and hooked yeah, it's like what was this? I remember somebody on the Slacktivist blog back during the WR described it was like when uh, when Slacktivist was doing the deconstructing the Left Behind series, and one of the comments was like, "Yeah, mm. it's the um, a sense of you know the sense of aggrieved persecution is the it pretty much acts as like that crack pipe of certainty where it's both addicting but it also self validating." And it's like that's one of the things that I did. It's like I think because like one of the things that I've been interested in over the last ten years is just how conspiracy 
conspiracy theory culture works and it's mm-hmm. um and it seems like um there's something yeah where it's it's like i said and this gets a desire too but it's kind of a thing of like there is a desire to believe um like a, almost a compulsion to believe and an enjoyment to believe um things that you um that at some point they know aren't true but you're still the you know they still believe they still want to believe them anyway and they kind of like grapple onto them even stronger yeah yeah the, um yeah and the, the left behind books are actually something i'd read in all of those when i was a kid and so i, I came back to them for um for my book against um and it was really fun to see kind of how those tropes like just uh like the whole like the the future in which the world falls apart is projected as like just a, a bunch like a packet of like 80s era evangelical tropes and and you know it's all about how the abortionists came in and forced all the women to have abortions because like the antichrist wanted to suck up their souls or something some, some like stuff like that right um yeah absolutely nuts but um um uh yeah sorry i lost my train of thought there but you were saying um but but yeah it's like about the but it's like it's it's the it's thing of like the and like fox news is a lot of like but it's it's not only it is is it detached uh but it's a it's um and it's also very, it's very, it's a very exciting visceral thing, but there's something. Oh yeah, because yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 there's something in the, what for me, it's like because I'm interested in conspiracy theory culture, not so much of like for the for the um, the details about the particular conspiracy, but it's more of like the mm-hmm. psychological me- uh, uh, mechanics of why either our culture or our species that like, needs to have, you know, why do we need to continually create. Not just these kind of stories, but these kind of stories that are that have this um, this 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 gap of mystification, uh, like this over amplifying of what you know of like what you know how power actually works. Uh, yeah, in order to, yeah, yeah. In order yeah. To, like, no, like it, I in one of my books in uh, in the cynic and the fool, I get into conspiracy theories as a way to kind of think about how beliefs that are like counterfactuals can actually have quite a bit of political utility mm-hmm. um, or social utility broadly, right? Um, and I draw on a theorist called um, Brian Keeley who has an, a great article. Um, if people have access to like databases, they can look up his article, Keeley of Conspiracy Theories. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says that you basically have like five kind of broad key features that are shared across conspiracy theories he says the official claim uh, the official narrative is always false uh to um the conspiracy as theorist is assuming that the real intentions are nefarious right like the, nobody ever conspiratorizes uh, nobody forms a conspiracy to do good things right that's just called a non-profit yeah. uh, <laughs> um so it's like it's always bad um three conspiracy theories tie together unrelated events um for the the figures might be very public but it's always a well guarded secret um and in five like there's always lots of errant data like just weird data sets that they kind of plug in together and say like isn't it that weird that that thing happened when that other thing happened that has nothing to do with each other um but when we're talking about it in class i had my students do some work on conspiracy theories in like an intro philosophy class i kind of divide it up between like let's think about like conspiracies that like don't matter and conspiracy theories that might actually be very dangerous right um so for example um uh, if I think the Earth is flat, then in all of the scientists in the world have kind of you know, joined in to get me. Um, it's not clear that that actually has any 
effect on my day-to-day existence, right? However, if I believe that all of the doctors are lying and uh, vaccines are actually dangerous to my child, then I might get my child killed, right? Or somebody else's child killed. So, so there's conspiracy theories that are dangerous and just ridiculous. Um, but then if you take the ridiculous um, – I, I further – and I think this kind of gets to like what you were asking here is I ask my students to like ask, OK, what what are people enjoying when they believe that the earth is flat? Um, and then they give me some answers like whatever off the top of your head like, OK, so your audience like is thinking right now, what is what are people enjoying when they think the earth is flat? Um, and then I correct myself and say, well, like oh, I didn't tell you what year I was talking about, right? Um, so like if we're talking about like 1492, that's a little bit different than 2000. Uh, 20 isn't it right because like the earth is flat because like everybody thinks that um and there's another point in history where like you might find something really cool about going down the youtube rabbit hole finding a community of other people who think the same thing uh feeling in the know on something that most people like don't know about hey i'm not saying the earth is actually flat but have you actually considered this argument about i'm not saying blah 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 like that that type of enjoyment you get out of being in the know on something yeah it's a- um those are those are very different sources of enjoyment Enjoyments, right? So, so we do have to think about like, is this um, actually harmful or is this innocuous? And then, like, if it is, uh, like, regardless, is, is this something that's being enjoyed because like someone doesn't have access to information or because they're actually enjoying being deceived, right? And and humans actually get a lot of enjoyment out of tricking themselves into believing things that not only aren't true but that they know that aren't true like, yeah. all of the time, right? Yeah, and that's kind of the, that's the thing, and that's it's one of the things that kind of. I always wondered. I mean, it, I guess this, it's, I guess the, the part of the one of the questions I always had in the back of my mind is like, you know, it's like okay, this is it's, this is a known fact of like that sometimes. Well, it's a known fact, but it's like it, but it's a lot, a lot of time like nobody in say media actually seems to understand how that actually works, or you know, because there's there's a lot of like you know for 40 years um taking claims at face value most of the time just seems like um you know par for the course but mm. Garrett do you have anything uh well let's see i mean i've i've had a couple of thoughts uh but i don't know how to tie it to kind of where we're at right now that's kind of the problem i'm i'm running into uh one was about uh, a movie that came out about 15 years ago called hell house did you watch that movie by any chance it's a documentary about the yeah. Hell House phenomenon, like a, like around like Halloween. Yeah. Yes. So, what are our themes that we deal with in Hell House? We deal with family violence. We deal with suicide. We deal with abortion. We deal with drugs. We deal with alcohol, drunkenness. Welcome. Your journey has finally brought you to the place of eternal agony. Here you will be subjected to constant torture and everlasting pain. Come, let us meet those who have swallowed the poison of my life. Precisely. I, I did. Yeah, it's been a long time, but I, I am familiar with the concept, and I'm I, I did watch the documentary. Yeah, we had a gnarly one in El Paso, Texas, where I come from, and uh, I've I, never I been never, through one. Like, I never, very I never went shocked. either. Yeah, but uh, one of the things I thought was so interesting about it was, you know, these are these are you know people who you know center their lives around this evangelical faith, and yet they're doing this whole performance of. Um, sinning, and they're really taking delight in it. I mean, it really seems like sort of um, 
uh, almost like a nice like training wheels uh, version of like what your book seems to be talking about. You know, you can kind of see it in in uh, in a in a sort of almost like a petri dish, you know, so to speak. The enjoyment of this um, tension between you know you know being wicked and being chosen, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, vicarious so. nature. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but of like walking through a house of, of like all of the things that you've done. Right. Because there's always, there was always like in the hell house, there's always the like, uh, culture of like, like psychotic killers or something like that. Um, I don't think they do mass shooters though. Uh, cause I might be hitting a little too close to home right. For the demographic. Right. But they do uh, like, there was always like a sexual component. There's always a drug use component. There's always an abortion component. And these are all things that like, like abortion, for example, we, um, did like evangelicals have uh, like white evangelicals have abortions at roughly the same rate as the general population, but we think it's a little bit higher. It's probably closer to mm. thirty five or forty percent, uh, whereas it's only about thirty percent in the general population. Um, like in like the, the theory on that is that it has something to do with like either the the massive doses of repression or like the like the effort to never let teenagers have condoms or anything like that, right? right. Um, so so like the so um, so when you go to a hell house as an evangelical, like you're going through like a house that's like recounting basically all of your like very personal sense and, and they are very individual and personal like nobody's talking about like um the the evils of like um i don't know invading iraq and killing two million people for no reason right. what is just something like that like that, that's not going to happen obviously um so um so th- those are kind of interesting and um uh i, I don't know those are I do, one thing i was also was thinking on this is that so i'd never been to a, a hell house actually um i have seen a documentary on it but uh, um, I did during the course of my book. Uh, I was doing some inter- like some work on uh, creationism in the U.S. and I decided like I've never been to the Creation Museum in Kentucky that has like people and dinosaurs living side by side, and then they they now have like an ark that they've built also, right. um, which was built with I think like fifteen hundred workers or something instead of just like five people like in the Bible um, <laughs> or four people. Um, and, and like anyway, I love that idea. Like I, I think they should have. I would have been fine with all the public dollars that went to that if they had had to put it actually in a real body of water and float it because like even with steel reinforced structures today we can't build a, a wooden boat that actually floats in a bottle of water that would be that size um, but anyways the sorry the side issue um, the creation museum everybody laughs about the whole aspect of dinosaurs and people living side by side but actually there's like a hell house that, that is almost sort of kind of self-contained in it um, before you get there and you can go online to the creation museum and take a virtual tour if you want to see what I'm talking about you can go through the whole thing virtually um, and before you get to the weird dinosaurs and people aspect, you have gone through room after room of like learning about how um, you know Roe v. Wade happened, and then like the Rwandan genocide happened. And isn't that interesting how both of those <laughs> happened so close together? Yeah, like an even like things like that that have nothing to do with each other or separated by decades. Um, like it, 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 it's a completely it's the exact same phenomenon, right? If, of like society, which Nietzsche said God was dead, and then like a few years later, nine uh, eleven happened right like like it's that kind of thing right like it's it's very hell house-esque yeah and it's and one of those things that struck me is and this might even get back into the lacan stuff is what is the how does that gap work because there's always that gap there's always that in conspiracy theory culture works like this too there's always the there you need to have that removed you need to have that that little that 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 mystification um Mm -hmm. 
Or like the irony or something? Yeah, me either, either irony, but there's always like, you know, forbidden object of desire. It's like you can't actually grab it. Um, it's, 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 it's something that, you know, it needs to be at a distance or at a remove from someone. Or like, you know, as we talked about here, like, you know, a lot of these people really get off on like triggering the libs, but it's much more about um, rather, but don't want to get, in, you know, full bore into, say, like just, uh, you know, physically hurting them but there's something i've always been curious about is always like the need in a different bunch of different ways um that we need to almost like create a gap it's almost like we, we can't fully comprehend or we don't really want um we don't we we ultimately are kind of like horrified if we got you know got what we really desired but there's like in like so many things there's always that there's always mm-hmm. this need for a, this gap or this distancing there to you know uh to happen and it's i'm always wondering like like wh- how does that actually work and in, in, in what is it about it that it shows up in like so many different concept areas well i'm not sure i 100 like understand what you're getting at, but what i think you're getting at like what what that makes me think of is actually like so like now my like um uh like absolutely disgusting like compassionate side is about to come out but i think what people like enjoy about conspiracy theories and but having kind of a distance like i kind of believe this but or maybe i want to provoke you uh but i'm not going to say it. i completely believe this i just want to say that you're an idiot for not knowing about this weird fact uh that i discovered on wikipedia five minutes to go um the, you know like that there's there's something about that that um allows you to feel kind of big and smart um but not really be in touch with how deeply insecure you feel about like not feeling like you understand the world okay. and like uh like you know i want to be smart i want to wish i knew more things um but uh, like i don't but i i you know, like i discovered this conspiracy theory on a blog and, and now i'm going to throw it at somebody to feel big and smart right like there, there's something that feels like kind of tragic or like um lamentable on almost to me um, about what people are trying to enjoy with a conspiracy theory of, of like this, this desire to be in the know and feel big and feel like you can make some sense of the world that is all apart, like all, all around you just falling apart. Um, and but like, but I, you know, I don't want to admit that I feel that way. I want to feel big and strong and, and not admit that I actually have no clue what's going on and shit's happening all around me and I'm terrified and I'm not sure that my life will come to anything. So like the only way I can deal with that is to feel smart right um is in that sense i think like the thing that the conspiracy theorist um is enjoying is actually very similar to what uh like um neurotic academics such as myself uh, are experiencing <laughs> by trying to know things and and like create some sense of control around the world right it's almost like a way of dealing with uh, powerlessness or anything um yeah 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 like like knowledge is a way to kind of displace that powerlessness right right um i am terrified right now that uh uh, like a year from now we could have like um armed militias on the streets and like that would not even seem weird anymore right so like the way i'm going to deal with that is like by theorizing it and thinking and reading about the history of police and like things like that that i i feel are actually productive right like it's not actually like we're all doing the same thing <laughs> like i think that actually is productive but i am aware that i'm actually trying to um exert some sort of control on my world um that's an illusion of control um, because at the end of the day like it, it's much easier to exert some sort of control even intellectually um, than admit that actually I'm really terrified of what's happening right now um, and things are actually getting really really bad um, it is much easier to, to, to just kind of intellectualize it right gotcha okay that makes sense alright well we've been going for quite a while and once again thanks you, thank you very much for your time I really appreciate it yeah thanks, so for, thanks for inviting me on yeah. yep. um, 
And I, uh, like I said, this is one of the things that I keep, I keep forgetting to let people give people a heads up about. But one of the things that we do on the show, like while we're wrapping up, is always ask people if they have any like recommendations or endorsements of something you've been digging on. It can be like thematically related or not, be it pop culture or book or you know whatever something you, that you've been digging on that you would that you want to signal a boost or let others know about. And oh, um. Yeah, uh, right now, uh, for the time being at least, um, I'm reading um, a book that is free to download uh, by Vitaly uh, called End of Policing. And uh, every single question that anybody asks about, like, well, if we got rid of police, like, uh, wouldn't there be more crime? Or, like, who would respond to this? Or, like, it, all of those things are, are very clearly, it takes, it, it's a very low theory book. It's a very easy entry point. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people are doing, like, a lot of reading on, like, uh, anti-racism or like steps to do that mm-hmm. um i i like and, and i appreciate that I, I find like the the theory behind all of that like much more like invigorating and interesting so um i, I a few months ago read uh ibram kendi's um stamp from the beginning the definitive history of racist ideas in america um and um i don't know for a lot for whatever reason i've been signal boosting um um uh, another book by Andrea Pitzer called One Long Night on the Global History of Concentration Camps recently mm. because like we do, we do have that phenomenon going in the background um, and Kendi's book or um, Pitzer's book uh, you know both of them whether you're talking about like racist ideas or concentration camps um, or Vitali's book on policing you will walk away afterwards having a comprehensive understanding of, of all of those 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 facets at, you know like at, at least at like an entry level you will have like um, like a really good grasp of like the issues at hand and um, so, yeah, so th- there's that. Um, and I guess, like, I also just kind of wanted to say, um, I, as you, like uh, we mentioned my podcast, but if anybody's interested in my work and doesn't have the time or the money for um, a, a, a whole book, um, I chopped up my book into smaller truncated versions and, like, recorded a whole podcast so uh, of it to try to get it away, like, as, as free as possible to as many people as possible. Yeah, that was excellent. Um, so if you want to listen to, like, a podcasted version, of the book, um, you can search my name, Tad Delay, on on whatever platform you listen to. Excellent, uh, Garrett. Did you did you have anything uh, recently that you've been digging on? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, um, I'd second Tad's podcast. That that I listened to it and found it uh, very easy to access. Whenever I hear Lacan, I get a little bit worried that I'm gonna be <laughs> I'm gonna be bewildered. Uh, but um, even though I do like Freud and some, you know, like people like uh, D.W. Winnicott and stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, Lacan, I am a little bit intimidated by. But I didn't find that that was uh, in uh, a barrier to me. So I really highly recommend it. Um, I will read the book, too. Uh, I've been reading something called The Thessaly Trilogy. It is a sort of sci-fi fantasy trilogy about some people that actually try to set up Plato's Republic. Um, uh, and it's, it's both amusing and sort of interesting and obviously grounded in an understanding of the source material. So, uh, I think that's a good way to pass time. Uh, I've been reading it aloud to my wife. Uh, and then, um, I'm not sure that I have much else. I really want to read that Kendi book. I, I've I've been seeing that bouncing around a lot, yeah, so I'll probably pick up a copy of that soon. Yeah, when we had Derek Varn on a couple of years ago, um, Kendi was one of the people that he really recommended that folks check out. Yeah, one of the most influential books I read about 
uh, um, racism in America was Racecraft by the Field Sisters. I, I just oh yeah yeah that I hear book about that was all the time. pretty life changing for me yeah uh, in in my po- in my political understanding of that. But I think that there's a, you know I think there are other sources, and I think certainly a history like what you're talking about is uh, you know something I could really benefit from reading. Yeah, uh, it should be noted that both uh, Racecraft and Alex Vitale's End of Felicine are both out by both out from Verso Books. Uh, hope, I'll try to get this posted soon, but hopefully, uh, I think I'll get this up in time. Folks can find out about how it's, you can still grab it because right now the, you can download it for free. And but I mean, what Verso and both Verso and Haymarket have book sales every three weeks and it's kind of a thing where I, I you know I I will never be able I will I don't think I will ever have the time for the rest of my even if I read for the rest of my life to like you know finally get through all the ebooks and hard copies of stuff that I get from them it's like a an, an ever-growing <laughs> list of uh, an ever-growing pile of lies that I tell myself I'll get to someday but also those are good oh real quick I just thought of something slightly off topic but um sure did you ever find it? Did you? What, what's your take on the fact of like the fact that the, the most uh, the uh, of of all the people in the world who the the most famous uh, Lacanian person is right now that are, um, is is uh, how does it strike the fact that it's fucking Zizek? <laughs> hmm. uh, of all people, man, I, you know I don't know. He's I, I, I've heard he's done a little bit better with his new book on the pandemic. I, I have not read it. Um, I I. I don't. I, I feel very conflicted because I I feel a lot of appreciation for uh, the way that he introduced me to a lot of these concepts early on, um, and then he's also uh, said a number of things in various op eds over the last couple of years that I, that I felt uh, were very obnoxious. Um, so I, I have very conflicted thoughts. Um, I, I drew on him a lot in my first two books, and he's not in my most recent book at all. Um, so. I don't know. There you go. Yeah. I, I, I don't quite know what to think. Um, a couple of things that I will recommend. One, uh, have, you, have either of you ever seen a film called The 7% Solution? No, no but it's that sort of dark so. uh, uh, Holmes movie, right, from the 70s? It's not really dark, but it's, I think you might get a kick out of it. It is It's Alan Arkin playing Sigmund Freud. But first you must tell me how you guess the details of my life with such uncanny accuracy. And a Robert Duvall with an English accent playing Dr. Watson. And the whole point is Dr. Uh, is that uh, Dr. Watson and Professor Moriarty figure out a way to you know work together. Watson is realizing that Holmes is increasingly addicted to his uh, his syringe of cocaine and saline solution. So they hear about this, <laughs> hear about this doctor who is practicing in Vienna. Uh, and so they uh, Watson and Moriarty figure out a way to get Holmes to Vienna and to like pretty much to, there's an entire like full on like mid 70s like drug withdrawal sequence you know kind of predating the whole sequence in uh, <laughs> train spotting but it's no it's a lot of it is it's great. yeah that sounds like a blast but it's yeah it's Alan Arkin and it's full on like Alan, it's like you in his Alan Arkin voice but also doing like right. a, like a, like his version of Freud so you have it's like the very it's like the very it's like a very much a pre- predecessor to you know like um, the Cumberbatch Sherlock or you know all the modern like more psychological takes on Sherlock this one came out in All 1976, right. and it's much more of like a full-on like half, um, half psychological because I mean literally Freud's in it, and half like swashbuckling like adventure through the countryside, and um, 
it's it's just an excellent film called the seven percent solution i think you, you can find it on i think it's on a couple of those streaming networks but we won't because we, we've been watching uh mystery a lot of you know a lot of um like kind of clever 70s mysteries and whodunits in the last couple of months uh also uh, in regards to the per, the current moment uh, another haymarket book um one that actually was written a few after um came out in like 2016 but kiaga yamada taylor wrote a book called from black lives matter to black liberation that really broadened my mind and you know helped radicalize me when i read it years ago that um it's 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 pretty much it was written in the after the first round of uh, black lives matter protests but kind of dealt with all of the you know the fact that all of these things were happening while you had obama as president and like a lot a lot of stuff you know hadn't gotten changed and was just you know mm. set up for the, the next round and turns out a few years later here we are so uh again yeah, yeah check out um uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor's from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, which you can get from Haymarket Books. And the ebook is, of course, re- extremely on sale right now. It's like 70% off or something, so it's pretty cheap. Again, thanks a lot for your time. Is there any particular thing you'd like yeah. to plug? Or if, if folks have any, uh, you know, ways that, you know, um, you know, the folks can get a hold of you or anything? Or, yeah. Um, yeah, we. Uh, I, I'm pretty easy to find because there's not that many tatelays. I, I think the only other tatelay is like a chef, um, and uh, and so, so we we kind of occupy different worlds. And um, yeah, like I, you can find me on um, Facebook. I have a Facebook author page. Um, I'm at tatelay on Twitter, and I, I keep most of my online expressions or interactions on Twitter these days. Um, let's see. I, I have a, a Patreon where I put out like a little bit of stuff that I'm kind of working on privately that I'm, I'm not really ready for everyone to, to see yet but um, I have a smaller group of people like you know if, if um, people want to support me there um, but uh, I didn't I don't know like I said I also try to give away as much as I can for free so like I really want people to know that like I have this like a audio version of my book <laughs> out there is um, if, if that's your thing and um, I don't know like I, I, I have three books and I, obviously I'm not traveling or speaking right now because the world is falling apart um, hopefully that will be different at some point and uh, i hope in the next year year and a half to have uh, another book out which is um going to be more kind of on um, themes of climate change and and sort of the what i'm kind of thinking of is the great changes ahead of us and uh, because we we have a lot of thinking to do and a lot of organizing to do and um, I've been playing around with a lot of ideas about religion, but like, really, like we we have massive, massive social changes that are ahead of us and inevitable in the next, um, um, in, in the next like my lifetime and my my kids' lifetime and all of that. And um, so that's I've also been like really into science fiction recently and like kind of thinking about like near term, what does the future look like and how are all of these horrible things that we're hearing about in the reports all of the time actually going to feel very very normal, um, like with given a little bit of time, like. You know, it, it, at some point, uh, like an example I always use from Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, science fiction author, is that at some point New York is going to be flooded and people are going to be getting around on um, boats and it's just going to be super Venice and people are going to pretend like that's normal. And um, so, so like that that's the type of ideas that I'm kind of working on right now is, is kind of thinking like, where are we headed? Like, how do we get there? How normal is it going to feel? How do we think about like the relationship of climate and uh, racism and like um, – and uh, 
capital and the the very real questions that we need to ask about whether or not we can have pocket utopias of like uh, you know like communities that are kind of doing things well or if we need to keep pressing on like universal revolution like th- those are the types of things that I'm working on kind of more abstractly okay that that's quite a bit more than you were probably asking for <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah whatever um, that's what I'm working on right now excellent uh, Garrett anything from you uh, you know, I'm working on becoming a better musician, Jeremy. Rock but and roll. There's, there's no way to access that online yet. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, Tad, I just wanted to also just say thank you because it was a really interesting conversation, and I appreciate thanks. it. Yeah, yes. uh, thanks, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for uh, this being, has been great. Uh, I feel like actually this has hit like quite a, a, a few things that I haven't gotten to talk about quite yet. So, oh, cool, uh, oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So we try um, to as being being yet another um, <laughs> mainly like you know leftist DSA type people uh, podcast. We try to at least put our own very small uh, individual spin on things. Um, well, well, I, I, it's just like ever since, especially since the the COVID lockdown started, right? I, I think I've done one other recording, and um, it's just such a hard time to to feel like any sort of creative energy to do anything. So right. um, I feel like I'm kind of finally getting into that space where I can sort of process um, and and theorize the world that's happening around me. So so, anyways, I appreciate it. Well, yeah, thanks. It's, I mean, as people point out this is it's the this is the one the one the one creative form or media that can thrive either in lockdown because people just you know set up shit in their houses and yak to each other on screens um once again Ed, yeah but thanks again uh folks if you uh have any uh questions comments or suggestions as to where to get good korean food in portland once everything starts up again whenever however the hell it's going to be uh please email us at giving the mic at gmail.com uh we as with every other podcast we do have a uh, a patreon to help us uh help us put this thing out if you like this uh patreon.com slash giving the mic um i can't really think of anything else yeah check out uh check out tad's books both the, uh uh and in his book on podcast form and uh final words uh final words everybody <laughs> I feel a lot of pressure to say final words. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. The only thing that comes to mind is I've been having that stereotypical, like, I don't know if actually it might be very obnoxious for me to say this is stereotypical, but that Lenin quote about uh, there happen. are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happens. Right. Um, and all I would add to that is uh, uh, stay safe in the cool zone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, stay safe, folks. And, um, I was gonna say is uh, <laughs> that as Matt Crispin pointed out, this is the you know the that kind of that kind of just delirious extended equilibrium purgatory of of lockdown just got punctured, and uh, we're in yet a whole other uh, whole other world, new world now. But anyway, uh, thanks everyone and good night. Disappointed!